they sit comfortably. So, good morning everyone. As you probably are all experiencing as we go into session, um, there's a harmony starts to develop, an internal harmony and an external harmony. And we all do the same ritual together, follow the same schedule together, um, turn up to experience the same passing moment together, life as it is together, and internally something starts to harmonise as well with our breathing and our body and our minds settle down. And uh, with a few glitches along the way, that's often the way that um, session proceeds towards the end. So we often come, come into this space with um, some sense of disharmony in our life. It might be the busyness, might be um, difficulty in the workplace, difficulty in families and relationships, um, struggles with fortune and misfortune, health issues and so on. But there's often somewhere out of sync in some way. And, um, and I think we're all intuitively uh, looking to find some kind of harmony that we're going back to again. But it's not a superficial harmony of um, the harmony of everything just being nice and everything going our way. It's the harmony of being with life as it is, whatever that happens to be. Because if it's a harmony that tries to be other than that, um, it's a false harmony. And it just creates more and more discontent and more disharmony. There's an interesting, um, rather graphic, kind of metaphor statement that um, Mumon makes in um, the introduction to the Mumon Khan, the first uh, uh, koans that we, we work on, the gateless barrier. And in it he says that taking up Zen practice is like gouging a, gouging a wound in healthy flesh. <laughs> Pretty dramatic kind of metaphor, isn't it? Here's this healthy arm and we're stabbing it, you know. Doing Zen practice, we're trying to understand something, get where somewhere, harmonise something, you know. But what he's really stating there with this graphic metaphor is that everything is actually in harmony the way it is. Right? So what's the point of doing Zen practice? What's the point of, you know, tormenting yourself with koans, do you know, and long hours of meditation when Buddha nature is right here now, the lotus land is right here now, this very body is the Buddha. What's the problem? What are you doing? Why are you taking up Zen practice? Mm -hmm. But of course he's, he's challenging us to, to see into the, into the essence of what Zen is. Mm -hmm. But we take it up anyway. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the three aspects of Zen practice, and it's been likened to a, a three-legged stool, so there's the spiritual insight, uh, there's meditation, and there's the precepts. They're the three elements that are necessary for really true Zen practice to take place. And, and all of the legs need to be even, and they all need, the three need to be there, otherwise the, the stool won't be stable. So we need all of those aspects, you know, to bring harmony back into our life. But if you look at them one by one, um, 
the precepts, when you, when you take up the precepts, you're not actually um, doing it in the spirit of becoming a good person or a virtuous person, because there's no such thing, in a sense. Um, what's it pointing out to us, the precepts, like not stealing, not lying, not harming, uh, not being unfaithful, etc., not being superior, um, is that it's pointing out all of the different ways in our life where we become disharmonious, you know, within ourselves and within our relationship to life and other people. And um, it's not as though we become virtuous, right? It's just that we notice all those things that we're doing that create the disharmony, and when we stop doing, there's harmony, right? And actually becoming a good person, right? you could put it in those words. But where there is disharmony, there in our thought and speech and actions, what's behind it most of the time is calculation. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to calculate to get, get a certain un- outcome that's going to be good for us or make us look good. Um, it's going to, be, going to be pleasant for me, make my life comfortable in some kind of way. So disharmony often has that sort of thinking component, calculating component in it. But, but virtue is just innocence. That's why we love, we love innocence in um, children, we love innocence in animals, you know, because they're guileless, you know, they're not actually calculating for an effect. Even though maybe they do silly things, you know, they're not, they're not actually calculating for effect, they haven't grown into that. And so, like with the, the gouging the wound in healthy flesh, when we practice the precepts, it's not like we're going to become good, we're already good, right? It's just that we've gone off on a on a track into this calculating mind that tries to work everything out so that it can manipulate experience. And when we stop doing it, then that we, we act from that innocent, guileless position, again, um, like a child, perhaps a wise child, but like a child. And then again with, and, and further to that, you know, um, we, we don't say we don't think there's anything virtuous in a river flowing downstream, you know, going to the ocean, then raining, then going down again and going through all its different rapids and so on. We don't say it's virtuous, it's just doing what it's doing. You know? The birds just sing, the rain just falls, there's nothing virtuous about it. And when we come back into harmony with that again, we're just with life as it is. We are life as it is. Then with meditation, um, most people at some point in their meditation, especially someone like me when I was younger, tried too hard. Years and years of trying too hard. What's trying too hard? There's a kind of a disharmony in that as well. Well, I'll I'll try hard and then I'll get this big inside, you know. I'm not getting the inside, so I'll just try harder. I'll, I'll try harder. Oh, well, that's not working. We'll leave and try harder, right? And you tense up as you're doing it. And, um, and that becomes a frustrating experience too if you do it like that. So often, often what happens, people put a lot of energy and striving into their sitting. And of course, it 
eventually doesn't get anywhere because it's the wrong approach, and then they give up. Well, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then they might come back to it again later on, well, we'll try really hard again. No, it doesn't work, so we give up. Um, and it's not a sustainable way of doing meditation. And meditation is, um, which you, you start to get a, a taste of what it really is when you do a session, you know, where you can really put time aside and settle into it. But it's simply just turning up, it's just simply turning up to be, to be present. And you can't put it in any other words. Just turning up to be present. So when you turn up to be present, you're embodied, you're breathing, breathing keeps going one after, one breath after another, and you experience sounds coming and going and sensations coming and going, and you see what you see, and that's all there is. That's all there is. And if you get out of your own way of striving to get somewhere, the body relaxes, the breathing just becomes very easy in and out, effortless breathing. And if we, we're practising in the appropriate way, um, it all just starts to harmonise again, things start to flow again. It's a bit of a clichéd word, you know, but we, we, we're out of our flow when we're in disharmony and when we start meditating, eventually we, we get back into that flow of experience again. But if we think it's some little samadhi bubble that we're going to go into that's kind of insulates us from the big bad world, um, then that's going, to, that's going to create disharmony at some point in time too because it's a false harmony. Um, if, if meditation is going to work for us in our lives, it's not just coming here to be in this quiet little oasis of calm for a while. It's really bringing that out into the hurly-burly of everyday life where everything's unpredictable um, and pleasant and unpleasant things happen. Fortune, misfortune happens unpredictably at any point in time and you're there with it. You're there with rolling with life as it is. That's when it starts to work for you in your life. And then the other aspect of Zen training is, is spiritual insight, which is really hard to define. Probably it's not a good idea to try and define it. But um, that's where something like koan study comes in, um, which challenges, koans challenges to see just how much we are actually entrapped in our thinking. We don't realise how much we're entrapped in our thinking because it's so habitual. Um, but koans challenge us to see actually you are when you have difficulty responding to it. And again, if you're like me when I was younger, I went at koans like a bull at a gate, like a dog with a bone, trying, you know, we're going to break through these and understand them. And, all, and, it, and it became a big struggle. And that's. That's just part of the process, that's just what we do. We all often start off like that. But if, if your, your practice is deepening as you go along, at some point the penny drops, that's not working. To be trying so hard to understand these kinds and you kind of settle into them and it's like 
instead of consciously trying to resolve it, somehow you let the unconscious resolve it, it kind of like bubbles up, it's a creative process. Just get out of your own way and it starts to happen. And when you, when you let go of that trying to have insight, you know, trying to experience this non-conceptual way of experiencing the world, well, it just, just arrives, arises easily. And then, and then Cohen's study becomes more effortless. Because, you know, the essence of spiritual insight, whether it's in Zen or any tradition, Christianity, any other form of Buddhism, it, 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 to, to be really on the point, it, it's understanding that there is nothing to understand. That, that, is, the, that is the core of it, right? Because the intellectual, conceptual mind wants to make more out of it, can write words about it and analyse it and say sophisticated things about it. But that's in essence what it is. It's understanding that there is nothing to understand. And that in itself is an understanding. <laughs> so, gouging a flesh, gouging a wound in healthy flesh. Dogen, who was one of the founders of our lineage, um, came to across that view early in his life as a, a Zen monk. Not those actual words, but something to the effect that um, if all beings had Buddha nature from the very beginning, well, in my practice, he, he, was, he seriously contemplated this issue and, uh, and considered, I believe, not, not practising, because what was the point? Mm -hmm. But one presumes, like us, that he heard those words, one presumes that he went, well, yeah, well, how come my life is still a mess? Right? How come I'm still in disharmony? Um, that's an intellectual idea. I'm not really experiencing that. And so we know, we know from the stories about him, deeply gave himself over to, to meditation practice for years and years and years until he he comes to um, a resolution to all that, all that searching. And when he goes back to China, people say, what did you learn? Like, what, what did you experience? You know, what are all the amazing things that happened? And he, and he says something to the effect of, um, my nose is vertical and my mouth is horizontal. <laughs> and, uh, and again, he says, uh, the crow goes craw craw, right? And life is just as it is. You know, in other words, he's saying, what I understood is that there's nothing to understand. Things are just as they are. Mm -hmm. But that's the, that's the paradox of Zen. Everything is perfect the way it is, and yet, it beseeches us to practice and to really, really throw ourselves into practice to really embody and experience that fact. <clears throat> A 
probably heard me say it many, many times in various different ways over the years doing the session, but what is at the core of our disharmony, which is in the Buddhist sutras, is this dynamic that goes on in our experience nearly all the time of grasping and aversion. Grasping after the comfortable, having aversion to the uncomfortable. Grasping after the pleasant, the things that we want, having aversion to the things we don't want in our life. And that dynamic runs our life to one degree or another. And as we do practice, it sort of starts to dissolve the more we do it. But as Joko points out in one of the sutras, I don't know whether you, you read it so far this morning, uh, this, this session, but the cocoon of pain is a very good one to really examine all the different ways that she points out about how we grasp and how we have aversion. But she goes through various different um, um, MOs that we all have. And, uh, you know, one of them is like, well, we'll, we'll, try, we'll try to get there by being perfect at everything we do and never make any mistakes. That'll get me there. Mm-hmm. We know that doesn't work. Or um, I'll just intellectually understand everything and, and conceptualise it all clearly in my, in my mind and then everything will be okay. Right? So I'll grasp after that. Right? I'll grasp after perfection. I'll grasp after intellectual understanding. Or I'll grasp after being in control of everyone, then they won't be able to harm me. Mm-hmm. Or I'll, I'll grasp at being the star of the show and then everyone will love me. All of those are the different types of patterns, relationship patterns um, that we all have. But what they all have in, in common as the common denominator is that we're trying to grasp at something and we're trying to avoid something. And we go round and round and round in it all the time and we create disharmony in ourselves and we create disharmony in our lives through doing that. So our practice always is to really see what's going on in our mind. And our practice then becomes like a um, uh, like the, the medicine of practice with that disease of the mind is to work towards... Um, not ignoring the unpleasant, like even approaching the unpleasant. And when we find the grasping mind wanting to get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, we inhibit. Mm -hmm. And by doing that over and over again, we break the power of this addictive force that's in our mind. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. It's an addiction. Um, We're all addicted at some level or another, if it's not, you know, drugs and alcohol are the simple ones to look at, or gambling or something like that, or pornography addiction. But we're all addicted to our comfort, you know, and wanting to keep it there. We're all addicted to wanting things to go our way, whatever that might be. And uh, so there's various different forms of addiction, but that's the nature of it. Craving. Craving is the word we use for physical addiction. It's the Buddhist word for desire. It's often translated that way. That's at the core going on there all the time. So it's very important that we're we're watching that um, experience. And 
in the Dharmapada um, Buddhist text, I love this uh, phrase, this, uh, these paragraphs. The thought manifests the word, the word manifests the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its waves with care, and let them spring from love, born out of compassion for all beings. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. And as you know from your own reading and experience, is that Zen is a school of Buddhism um, that has a particular focus on breaking through this conceptual prison that we're in. Um, that's the, what the whole koan system is based on. Um, but, but even non-koan Zen is all about seeing through this conceptual frame through which we see the world and break it up into bits and pieces and analyse it and try to manipulate it so that it fits our sort of desired model of what we want it to be. That's what we're often doing all the time. And uh, it really makes a point of if we can, if we can break through this conceptual prison and see life from a, a, a non-conceptual glimpse it, at least, from a non-conceptual point of view, then we, we have a different experience of it altogether. And of course, we all use language and concepts. I'm using language now. Um, but as Robert Aitken said, who was himself um, quite a scholar, an intellectual man, um, it's about, about using concepts, not being used by them. In our, in our life, we, we use by concepts all the time. We divide things up into good and bad and right and wrong and um, whatever, left politics, right politics, whatever it might be. We divide the world up into so many different ways and take positions. And that's fine at the relative level, but we miss out on actually seeing this absolute experience that's behind there that doesn't discriminate at all. Right? And, and it's from that place that we're seeing that fundamentally everything is sacred. Yes, in the everyday world, we live in the relative world where we've got to make decisions about this and that and so on, but that's the background of it which is with us all the time when we experience life from that, that non-conceptual place. So when you put it together, what really creates a lot of the disharmony in our lives is it's a compound of all this conceptual thinking driven by grasping and aversion. Like you, you put the two together, like spinning together, and it creates a mess. Mm -hmm. Calculating mind, you know, trying to get somewhere all the time, right? whatever that might be. Um, and by, if our, we live our lives from birth to death like that, and we, we just miss we just miss so much. Um, we, we miss the, the beauty and the joy and sacredness which has been there all of the time. And we realise we didn't have to make that wound, gouge that wound in the healthy flesh. 
the healthy flesh was there all the time. In some ways it's true to say that when we um, practice sin we become like a, like a child in a sense, there's a sense of simplicity and innocence which is there, but it's a, it's a wise innocence you know, or an innocent wisdom which is there. And uh, you may have heard me speak about in previous talks of um, um, Dr Ian McGilchrist who wrote the books on the right and left hemisphere of the brain and their different functions. And it's quite, quite clear from his research that the left hemisphere is the, the part of our brain which is very calculating and it's like a computer and it, and it sort of analyses life and manipulates it. You know, and it's got its function, we need that, it's like a tool like an axe is a tool, or a spanner is a tool, or a computer is a tool. We need it. Not so it's bad. Um, but when it just runs on its own steam without the right hemisphere being primary, it goes off its own, own track. It gets caught up in thinking it's right, um, doesn't understand novelty or present moment experience, just goes off on its own track and creates disaster in our life if we live from that hemisphere. And and you could say that our um, practice is about restoring, from a neurological level, restoring our experience, restoring our, our right hemisphere to its primary place, which is where we experience present moment experience without conceptualising it, where we experience primarily our, our body sensations and our emotions and our perceptions, and we see things much more holistically. Right? It's like we, we need to get out of the entrapment of that left hemisphere calculating mind and um, primarily being in, the, primarily being in the, the right hemisphere, which is kind of like experiencing the, the absolute point of view of life, whereas the, the left hemisphere experiences the relative point of life. And then there's one of our... our uh, another one of our sutras says, you know, the, um, there's the identity of relative and absolute come together into one experience. There's no left hemisphere, no right hemisphere. <laughs> it's just this moment. So as we continue to practice during session, um, certainly like make, make a point of, of turning up to be present. That if there's an effort, that's the effort to be made. Make a point of turning up to be present and really commit yourself to that the best way you can. But don't try and push the river. You don't have to push the river. The river will flow in its own way. And if you notice that you're pushing the river, just relax your body, relax your breathing and um, just allow it to happen. <laughs>